Yo, that Bon Iver was new. <laughs> that was new. Anybody like Bon Iver here? Who did that? <laughs> that was kind of dope, though. That was kind of dope. Uh, all right. Um, so like I said, we're in this racism, racism and privilege series. Uh, and from week one, we've talked about the fact that, uh, that the reason we're talking about racism uh, isn't because we're a political church. It's because we look at the life of Jesus and we see how Jesus brings peace to kingdoms. And we see that Jesus brings peace to kingdoms by treating people equitably, not equally. Jesus did not treat people equally. Um, so we see Jesus gives more attention to people who um, are people who are minorities. He gives more attention to people who are uh, in the lower socioeconomic classes. He gives more attention to people who are oppressed and marginalized. Jesus did not treat people equally. He treated them equitably. And so we follow that lead and we bring uh, up the fact that there are systems of race in our country that contribute to the way that we all live, the way that we all survive. And that's why today uh, I want to talk to people who have experienced racism or experienced ideas of race and systems in very different ways. So can we please welcome Welcome, Sarah New. She's a pretty good person. I like her a lot. She's a deacon in the church. She also spoke two weeks ago. If you haven't heard that, or three weeks ago, if you haven't heard it, it was like the best sermon ever, way better than mine. <laughs> so listen, this is Ashley Putnam, everybody. Ashley's been a member of our church for years, five years now. Five, yeah, a, a long time. Yeah. Um, Ashley just moved to Philadelphia, though, and um, still comes back on the weekends, so we're grateful. Yeah, yeah. And last, last but not least, Frank Espinel. Frank has been at our church also for about four years. Uh, he runs our, our men's uh, ministry, and, uh, which reminds me, we've got to do some stuff, man. Yeah, we've got to make that happen. And so uh, I wanted to talk, to talk to Ashley and Sarah and Frank just about the experiences that we've had. And so the first question that I want to ask um, is, is simply this. How do we self-identify? How do we identify? Because I think even in the way that we self-identify, uh, it'll speak a lot to the way that, that race plays a role in our lives or, or the way systems play a role in our lives. So Sarah, I'm going to open this up for you. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I probably identify most as someone who uh, writes as a writer. I think my profession and my trade is what is most salient to me. And then I have various sub-identities around that in terms of I'm queer, I'm immigrant, Asian, uh, first oldest child, uh, pastor's kid, all that kind of stuff. Um, but when it comes to race specifically, I have two different buckets I use to think about it. One is the bucket of culture and heritage. So I'm Chinese Malaysian. That is a heritage I'm proud of. I claim um, as unique meaning to me. And there's a the bucket of race, which is I think something I only discover later in life. Uh, this moment of like, oh, I'm seen as this way. It's an identity that I don't so much claim as something that is assigned to me. To see like, oh, people see me in the same bucket as Indians and Filipinos and Japanese, which is like a strange thing. Um, and I can give a concrete example that's helpful. So growing up, uh, you know, we watch a lot of Disney movies. And I remember in high school feeling a lot of angst because the Disney narrative is very much like to be yourself, to self-actualize means you reject your family, your home, and you're this like kind of, you realize a static identity. And I was like, am I not really being myself then if I see myself playing out different identities to my family, to my friends, to my sports team, to my classmates. Like, am I not a true individual? <laughs> so this is me at uh, 14. But, um, <laughs> and, but I thought it was something my fault. Like, I just needed to be, like, more confident. I needed to, like, assert myself more. Things that, you know, if you listen to my story, my dad told me a lot in, a way, in ways of, like, becoming more white in some ways. And only later in life did I look back, and partly because I see moves now like Moana or what have you. Um, and it's like, oh, okay, it's, it's, it, 
was an, um, an individual problem I was having. It was not like a fault of my personality or what have you. It was that there are just larger structures that dictate which stories are told as the default narratives that kids learn growing up. And so once you start understanding race, it's actually very liberating because it's like, oh, it's not an individual issue. It's actually this larger thing. Frank, I'm gonna skip over to you. Uh, yeah, talk about how you identify. Thanks, Sarah, I appreciate sure. your, yeah. I'm black. <laughs> um, and, and, and I say that with a pause because being of Dominican ethnicity, right? Like, I'm, I'm super proud. Like, you know, baseball, the whole thing, right? <laughs> but that is, um, unfortunately, it's not something that Dominican people will embrace. They're African roots, and you will hear them draw things to Taino roots, and well, I'm a mixture, and I'm European, and I, nah, I ain't none of that, okay, I'm not. There is a strong tie between the African diaspora, right, let's go with that, right, right? different yeah. pronunciations, yeah. and where Dominican Republic, uh, Dominican Republic is located geographically and where the slaves came from. So for me to embrace my blackness is like, it's very shocking, and if you know anything about the history of my country, it's very against the grain. Like, like I, I cannot bring this up at Thanksgiving. Like, the, it's over. It's, a, it's, it's done, you know? But, um, but it's something that I tie deeply to. Um, it led me to make decisions about how I raise my children. Um, I have two girls who are, yeah, wow, they'll be 19 and 11 next month. Um, so my daughter's this, like, really feisty college freshman who wants to fight every white kid who doesn't understand blackness. And, <laughs> I may have overdone it with her, just, just, <laughs> just a little bit. But, um, but in, in many ways, that's what, that's what I had to impart on her. Like, I had to give her this presence and not pass on that angry gene. I had to give her the spark and not the burden. But I had to be honest about where the spark came from, right? And that's what I'd like to, that's what I bring. Like, that's why my identity, it's all tied into who I am. Can I ask you a question about, you know, you identify as black. And I, the yeah. Blackness, was that shared in your family? Was that no, something that your no, family gave you? No, absolutely not. No? Absolutely talk not. A little like, bit of, yeah, talk a little bit I about mean, that. I mean, you know, like similar to your analogy about watching Disney movies, like I grew up watching Univision, right? So we watched Telemundo and no one looks like me. Like no one. And I would tell my mother and like, I'm, here I am, I'm going to college and I'm learning all these things. And I was like, I can't believe you watched this. Turn that off. There's no one that looks like me. And I was like, like mijo, please, I don't want to deal with this. Like, stop. Like, it, it, I, but I understand that my parents are processing it through a different paradigm. Like, they grew up during a dictatorship that killed you if you were black, that killed you if you spoke back, right? So, like, growing up, like, when I went to college and the race thing was big and, and you know, you had Rodney King and you had all these other issues and white people were, like, uh, sharing their opinion and black people were sharing their opinion, I would laugh because I would say, I have this in my own family. Like, you guys can go home to your own families and say, wow, like, here's my bubble, here's your bubble. My bubble has both. And you have a lot of people who just kind of sit there and just like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the tension. Right. It's the absolute tension. Right. Thank you, man. Thanks. Uh, Ashley, talk about how you identify. Talk sure. about, yeah, please. So, you know, you get the box and it's like, what ethnicity, what race, right? So I would be Caucasian or white. Um, but I think speaking to both what Frank and Sarah talked about, it, part of whiteness is not knowing what that means and not even having to come to terms with when I understood race, because whiteness is really a, it's just a blanket term for majority culture, right? My ancestors are Dutch, uh, German, English, French, but the box I check is white. 
and it is kind of an erasure in some descent. I think that's something I've come to terms with a lot more recently in my life. Like, why don't I know any German? Or why don't I know anything about my ancestors or my heritage or the foods that we ate growing up? Um, and I often talk a lot about that, coming to terms with that as um, a moment I was going through a training, someone asked me once, what do you like about being white? I'm just gonna sit with that question for a second because it was probably the hardest question I've been asked in my life. Um, and I had a really hard time answering that question because I realized that whiteness wasn't necessarily about my heritage, my ethnicity, my family, the things that make me proud of who I am and how I identify as a policymaker or a Texan or like what sports teams I like or any of those things. Um, whiteness is about the relationship of one group or one majority culture to others. And I think that's something I've been really grappling with and, um, you know, hope to talk a little more about. Yeah, it's important. I know that in my own family, I'm, I'm married to an Indian woman, and my kids will say I'm half Indian, I'm a quarter Irish and a quarter German, and there's all these Indian traditions, and then they'll say, Daddy, what are the Irish and German traditions? And I'm like, let's make some up. I, I, I don't know what they are, because yeah. for our whole lives, we checked that whiteness box, right? That's, that's right. what we do. I think that's pretty telling in itself. Um, I know I mentioned in a sermon that... that uh, that if you wanted the ability to vote in America for much of America's history, you had to check that white box. And so what you do is you, you lose, you lose your, your culture. It's true. So um, I think that's how we all identify. And we all start to see different systems or the way systems play out in, in the way we identify. But what was like the big moment, like the aha moment, the moment where you were like, oh, man, racism is real. Like this is, this is a thing. Um, and I know we just asked that question amongst each other in some ways. Um, Frank, I'm going to start with you on this one. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. I think um, I can think back and point to maybe two dozen moments where I was just like, wow, this is, this is it. Um, but for me, like as a New Yorker, you ride the train all the time, right? So like getting a driver's license and having some beat up car with like five million miles on it was the coolest thing in the world because <laughs> now you could just find parking, right? But you could drive back and forth wherever you wanted, right? And I remember driving and like, you know, somewhat, like not a Flatbush Avenue, but like depending on where you live, a somewhat busy thoroughway, right? And having a police officer just come out of nowhere, pull me over, which is fine. You know, no problem. Like, I'm not doing anything. We're not drinking. We're not doing anything. But the guns in the window, getting drawn, putting down on the floor, like, my, my face is in the gravel. My private parts are being searched. And the, prob the problem is this, right? It's not the interaction. The interaction can be uncomfortable. It's the fact that I can't say anything. Because if I do, right, then you find something. Or then it goes somewhere where it doesn't want to go. You're already dealing with someone who, on a scale of 1 to 10, is at a 27, right? And it's dehumanizing. But we went through it. You're hyped up. You're like, man, this sucks, whatever, blah, blah. We get in the car. We go down to Times Square. You know what? It's 11 o'clock. Let's catch this movie. We get pulled over again. Again. And it's like, what are the odds? What are the odds that twice, once in Times Square, I have to get pulled over with people walking past me. It's dehumanizing. And all you want to do is be spoken to. Look, if, if, if there's a taillight, if there's a reason, if there's something going on, that's fine. But that extra effort is not happening, right? And there's a deeper conversation that goes behind police and black communities. And like, like, I don't want to go there because it'll move the target, right? But that's the aha moment, the idea that other people don't get treated like that. And I knew that as a child. Like, as a very young child, I knew that when my grandmother lived on the Upper West Side, there were no police officers there. And I can go to the store and I'd be okay. 
I can go by myself. I'd be all right, right? But I couldn't go in my neighborhood. I couldn't, or I couldn't go to a neighborhood. I couldn't drive everywhere I wanted. So all I wanted was a car to pick up girls, right? <laughs> and I couldn't use it, you know? And, and I couldn't use it because of me, because of who I was. Ashley, yeah, to, uh, talk about your aha moment. Yeah, I have a great sort of counterpoint to that. Um, you know, I think in many ways, being white, I grew up in Texas, right? And so, like, when we talk about racism from my family, it's like, well, I don't say the N-word, and I'm not personally, I'm a good person, so I can't be racist, right? And I think a lot of this, hearing these conversations and honestly coming to New York and talking to people and living this different experience in New York amongst different communities, I realized how much racism is about power and the way it's exerted on people or not. Um, so the story I always talk about is uh, my partner, who would be visibly identified as Latino, uh, when we first started dating, I was meeting him actually on his stoop in East Harlem, which is interestingly where I now live, um, and he was late. He didn't show up. And I got mad, because you know, you're first dating, and you're like, okay, all right, this is it. I'm not gonna let some guy blow me off. So I go to my girlfriend's house down the street, and he's calling me, and I'm angry, right? And he finally gets on the phone, and he's really upset. And he's like, I got stopped in the park. And I'm like, what? Why'd you get stopped in the park? This is, this is a lie, right? Well, no, you're not allowed to be in that park after 10 p.m. This is the park that's like right in front of where our house is now. And I, I will say, like the perfect moment of me being complicit in systems of race, I just didn't believe him. I told him he was a liar. I thought he was blowing me off. I thought it was a lame excuse. You know, we had a whole conversation where he talked about, here he is, with, you know, he had his hood on with these officers, like really aggressively questioning him until he even after he'd taken out his license and showed, I literally live one block from where we are. And they still gave him a ticket. And he stopped while the officers were talking to him and said, look, there's a lady over there with her dog in the park. I'm sorry, ma'am, like you're not supposed to be here. It's after 10 p.m., right? That to me, I mean, I actually like, I still couldn't quite believe it. And I think that is part of the aha moment is now I live there. Now I, I know this for a fact. When I walk through that park, when I'm around, I've told people the story and people in the neighborhood are like, nah, -uh, you could be at that park after 10 p.m. Like, sure, if you look a certain way. And I've realized how much as a white woman, when I interact with systems, like interacting with a police officer or security guard, I'm perceived to be innocent or someone who's in need of protection and how unfair and honestly heartbreaking it is that someone I love and know so dearly could be treated differently just because of how people look at him. And I think that often to me is the, the aha moment is that like these things are painful to talk about. And this was hard for me to really, like it, I really didn't want to believe him. That was me just refusing to understand that the world could just be that unfair. Um, and I think that's my aha moments coming to terms with racism are, are realizing and processing through that pain um, and really like, listening to people and what they're going through. Thanks, yeah. I think there's a, you know, there's a myth, and the myth is uh, we all have a chance, right? We all, we all can make it in this place. And, and I think acknowledging the fact that it's not true, that there, there are people who are getting pulled over because of the color of their skin or people are getting stopped in a park or whatever it might be, it's hard for, hard for all of us to accept, right? They, it goes against the myth that says, oh, everybody's got a shot, we can all do this, it's a wonderful place, it's a melting pot, blah, blah, blah. Um, that takes that away. And so to not believe it or to not want to believe it, yeah, it makes sense. It means we're, we're, we're sort of scrapping an entire ethos that we were brought up with in this country. Um, but Sarah, I know you have some 
more to say about that, so I'll let you talk a little bit. Sure. I mean, I think it's a basic psychological thing, right? You don't want, whether you're straight or cis or whatever dominant group you're in or white, you don't want, it's too painful to acknowledge that the reality is what it is, so you rather just kind of stay in that bubble. And I see that even in my parents. And for them, the story's a little bit different. It's like, we came here for to live a better life. So we don't really want to hear stories about how this country sucks and how this country is like discriminating against us because that would negate the kind of the point why we came here in the first place. And I recognize I have a certain privilege in being able to feel more secure in my Americanness that I can look at these inequities and face them and not feel like unsettled. Whereas when my parents were to face that, it brings up some like historical like kind of trauma that they've had to go through. And so, um, you know, for me, my aha moment, I think, it's, it's really coming, is realizing that, that my narrative is going to be different from my parents. And even just like three weeks ago, I was reading news headlines about the budget negotiation deals and how the Senate decides to remove DACA from the table. And this Republican senator just says, we're really close to agreement. All we need to settle is the DACA question, the immigration question. And I think we're in time right now in which like immigrants specifically are getting like the scapegoating, the, the sort of blaming of like what's going on wrong with this country. And it, to my mind, it just sort of signals, and it, I don't know if my parents are able to recognize this, that no matter how hard you try to belong here, if the room is too tight and not everyone can fit in the elevator, you have to be the first one to go because you don't actually belong here. And that, when I read the headline, that was that sinking feeling I've had. And it's partly because I've had to educate myself because it's not something that you'd learn in public school of the history of um, like immigration policy in this country, dating back to the first law that this country enacted to prevent an ethnic group from coming here was against the Chinese people on 1882 until 1943. And then a learning in college, a friend of mine, her name is Annie, she's Chinese American. Her uncle is Vincent Chin, who is a Chinese man who was beat uh, with a baseball bat to death by two white auto workers in Detroit in 1982 for mistaking him as Japanese and telling him, you're taking our job. So the time the Japanese automakers were starting to take off. And this two, the two men got off with no jail time, no conviction, nothing. And so realizing, okay, this is a history of this country, and now we're seeing in like in a current political state, it's become more obvious. But that history, I think, is something that I've had to realize, and over time. I want to, yeah, I want to keep talking about that a little bit. I want to talk a little bit more about um, uh, model minority or, or that myth as, as well. And I want to talk about how that might look and feel different uh, for you, Frank, than it does for you, Sarah. Uh, so if you want to speak to that a little bit, please. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. I think that. Like when, when you are, like when you're black, right? To discuss race, like that hurts. And I don't think people understand that. Like that's, it's, it's beyond uncomfortable. Like it's painful to sit and, un, and, and unpack it, right? And then you have people who will look at you and say, well, look at the Asians. They're, and I'm sorry, I just wanted to use a quick term, right? But they're like, look at that community. They're thriving, they have businesses. They, right. No, no, I mean, you know, in a sense, of, like, I, I don't I'm kind of going off the dome. But, you know, they, they, like, there's a sense of, like, well, why can't you be like that? Similar to the fact that, like, people will tell you, well, why can't all black people be like you? You know, and I was like, well, one, what do you mean by that? Right? Right? Two, why are we pitting one against the other, right? So, so not, only am, not only am I a person of color, not only do I have to feel awkward in every situation, but now I have to aspire to silence. So I have to aspire to what you feel is comfortable. Right, and that's really hard to deal with. Yeah. Sarah, do you want to speak into this a little bit? You can. Sure. 
I, 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 I want to keep this one. Yeah, yeah. You always got to hold the mic. Yeah. <laughs> Maintain that power. Um, so, uh, I knew it. It was, it was too easy of a setup. Yeah, it was too easy of a setup. Thanks, thanks. I, I, I thanks laid it up. I, I, thanks. I did. It was. That was an alley-oop. Thanks for the, thanks for the assist. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. After the sermon I gave two weeks ago, so, some people came up to me like, oh, why can't everyone talk about race the way you did? And I think there's a moment of like, well, it's because I worked so hard to be able to translate it in a ways that it will not trigger defensive feelings or what have you so that people can receive that message. And I don't think, if you're white, you, you understand the double consciousness you have to go through. You have to both think about what you say and then what the other person will receive what you say and then recalibrate that in your own language. I mean, when it comes to model minority stuff, there's a lot there, I'm happy to talk about that uh, after service, but two very quick things. One, a lot of that, one of the big, you see that term come up a lot starting around the 1960s and 70s. Before that, Chinese people were seen as like opium addicts, prostitutes, gamblers, et cetera, and a lot of reasons for that. And one big reason, though, there's a shift in the 1960s is because the Immigration Act laws change, and they start uh, basing it based on family ties, but also professional skills. So we start letting in people with graduate degrees and master's degrees. You got to be the Chinese doctor, the Indian engineer. My dad's an engineer. That's how we got our visa to come here. And so, of course, and then you take all this pool of highly educated, smart people, and like, oh, why can't you be like these people? It's because you kept all the poor people out. You, took, you didn't let the unskilled people in. Um, that's one reason, and then the other reason you see very much the model minority term being used in the 1960s to, to uh, go counter-argue, essentially, against civil rights activists and say, like, well, these people are doing well without help, so why do you need help? And it's, we're deployed, Asian Americans are deployed as a wedge between white and black Americans. And we have to realize this within our communities, I'm talking about like fellow Asian, Asian Americans, the way anti-blackness works in our communities. We feel we can get a leg up if we step on someone and say, like, we're better than someone, at least in this country. And it's just like, completely false and just not Christian. Yeah, and I think that's a narrative that's that's true across the board. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess this quote up, but there's a quote basically that, that happened uh, 50, 60 years ago that said that said uh, poor people, you know, lower on socioeconomic class, they'll never look up. They'll always look down for the person they could step on to get mm -hmm. that leg up. And I and I think that's perpetuated throughout our history, uh, throughout our systems, and throughout today. So I think that's something that's certainly true. Um, and so you know, we're here and we're in a church talking about it. I don't know. I mean, sometimes I think. I think it's an uncomfortable thing to hear uh, our life experiences and, and to dispel myths that things are okay or that things can be okay or that we can um, you know, be this, this great America, right? So the question becomes this, why, are, you know, why, why do we keep talking about it? And why talk about it in church? I know that there's been a little bit of pushback. I think by and large our church has done an amazing job hearing these stories and participating in them. But there's definitely uh, a lot of people who, who are like, this is political. Um, is it political? Is this a Jesus thing? Is this a Christian thing? Um, Ashley, I'll let you go ahead and, and, and yeah. start. Yeah. Um, I always think, you know, I hear a lot from growing up in the church in Texas. I think a verse that speaks to just like the heart of God is really the, the God looks at the heart, not the outside, right? That, that it is a human thing to try to judge people based on how they look or how we want to categorize them. But oftentimes people take that verse and they stop there and they say, you know, we're all God's children, everyone's all, all equal, lives all lives matter, right. <laughs> everyone's equal under the Lord, you know, I'm colorblind. And I don't actually think that was what Jesus did in his life. Like he didn't just say, we're all cool, right? He actually, I mean, there's one of my favorite passages is when God tells us to, you know, invite people into our homes, invite the sojourner or the foreigner, the person whose experience you don't know. He's not telling us to like, you know, say everything's cool, but we're not going to talk about it. He's actually telling us to like get uncomfortable, 
right? To break bread with people, to sit with people, to like learn about their shared experience and to really go out of our way to give of our own so that someone else can be heard. And I think that's the most Jesus thing that we could do. It's also really hard. Um, and I think that's why it's important to talk about it in church. And it's why, you know, to me, church is the perfect place to be really like deeply loving people and understanding who they are and how this impacts them. Thanks. Sarah. Oh, okay. Should I get into the acts? I was, I was looking at you while you did that too. So, I'm going to uh, just recapitulate something I said uh, last Sunday, two Sundays ago, but more detail. So in the book of Acts chapter six, uh, the church sets up this uh, essentially like resource redistribution system where they say, if you have economic needs, the church will take care of it because the rich people who are going to sell property and create this church fund are going to distribute it. And one of the programs that have going on is a widow kind of program where they give re food or something to widows, um, which is cool. Like, we could try doing that. But what is the equivalent of the widow today in our church, in our society? Um, or, you know, what have you. But will they get this complaint halfway through that the Greek-speaking widows are being overlooked in favor of the Hebrew-speaking widows? And maybe there's some language issues, who knows? Um, especially with immigrants, that's something that comes up a lot. Um, and so the apostles realize, hey, we're kind of overwhelmed, we're doing too many things, we need to create a committee specialized to focus on this, and they call them the deacons. And what's really interesting is that they could have said, um, you know, let's make this 50-50, like 50% Hebrew, 50% Greek, and make sure like colorblind, kind of equal distribution. But commentators note that the, all the deacons that are selected have Greek-sounding names, which means they're all Greek. Um, so essentially, I, what I really like about that story is that the, the apostles recognized that what was going on was not really just a, an unequal distribution of resources, but an unequal distribution of power. And if we think about that, and we use that as a metric to think about why is it that in the United States, the states with um, the highest percentage of African Americans also have the lowest sort of welfare, um, I don't know the exact word, but the kind of funding categories and the most restrictions for getting welfare. Like That's an unequal distribution of resources, but also maybe an unequal distribution of power and political power. So these are the questions that I think our, our texts teach us to ask and the ways in which we should then think about society. Absolutely. I think that, um, like to bring this conversation full circle, when, um, when I was invited to speak on this panel, um, I spoke to someone about it, someone who I'd known for a long time. And he said, you know, just make sure that the word is involved in what you're saying, right? To keep it spiritual, keep it centered in God. So I did, I did a search and similar to what you had mentioned, right? Everything was all encompassing. Oh, God doesn't see us. We're all spirit, things like that. So when I looked at the book of Ruth, there was this point, right? So, you know, recap, right? They're in a strange land. Uh, Naomi's sons die, so now her daughters-in-law are there. And she tells them, go back to your land, because then you can remarry. Like, I'll just be this widow, and I'll figure things out. And Ruth tells her, no, your people will be my people, right? I, I'm not asking anyone to follow me on this, but that's the commitment that I came to make today to this church, right? Your people will be my people. And the next verse says, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, should we part. More or less. Please correct me. No, you're on. Right? You're on. Yeah, yeah. So the idea here is that this is not going to change. I don't want anyone to walk away and say, wow, that was great. That was awesome. Cool. On to the next one. Right? Like, that's not what we're here to do. So I've challenged myself to get more involved, to create more platforms so that we can have regular conversation. Right? Like, let's see each other as people, right? Your people, my people, let's all stand together, 
Because when I look at Charlottesville, they didn't come for one group, mm. right? They chanted, Jews won't replace us. Blacks won't replace us. Like fill in the blank, right? It's only a matter of time before they get to everyone. So why are we fighting this in small groups? Absolutely. I mean, that, yeah. You can drop that mic if you want to. No, no, yeah. I, no, I could. Like, like that? <laughs> yeah, like yeah. That. Okay, cool. Um, no, it's funny. How many people know the, um, that Zacchaeus song? Did anybody sing the Zacchaeus song when they were a kid? Thank you. None of them did. I was like, do you know Zacchaeus was a wee little man song? And they didn't. But what's interesting to me is, is I, when, I, when, I re -look, when I look at scripture all over again and take away like the child eyes, like, you know, Jesus talking to Zacchaeus was this incredible act uh, of being uncomfortable. And not only that, but taking Zacchaeus, who, who was an oppressor and who did marginalize and who did keep people in, in places where they were powerless, Jesus goes and eats with that person and hangs out with that person. And then as Sarah definitely pointed out, Zacchaeus has to repent. Like, Jesus calls for it. Jesus is like, you repent now. Repent of the fact that you've been oppressing, that you've been marginalizing. Um, pay back double everything that you took, right? That's a really big deal. This isn't like a sweet song like, Zacchaeus was a we. This is a song about, like, the powerful saying, you know what? Okay, we've done something here. We've made a system that doesn't work. And it's repentance. It's changing our hearts and minds about these systems and doing our part in them. And so I think this is, this is probably one of the most biblical things we can talk about. It's an incredibly important. Um, which gets me to my last question. We're a church, and we're talking about this in church. Our series ends in two weeks. What is it, what is it that we can do? How do we keep this conversation going? This shouldn't end after seven weeks and be like, well, that was great. We talked about it. Nice. What, uh, what are just some, some, some quick and easy steps? And Sarah, I'll go ahead and let you start on this one, and we'll just sort of go down the, the line. Sure. Um, three things. I mean, the, the workshop is on February 10th. A friend of mine is coming to facilitate it. She's great. She's a trained therapist. She's led these workshops for other churches. If you actually want to do something about this and not just walk away, please show up and talk or talk to staff and what have you. I think we need people in this church to sort of take up this mantle and say, you know, I co-run the LGBTQ ministry with a couple of people here. It would be great if something equivalent could that could happen with anti-racist or racial justice work here in this church. Uh, and the very last point is, um, if it, like for me, as a U.S. citizen, I have a privilege of my legal status, right? So on February 28th, I'm going to go down to the New Sanctuary Movement and go through an, an accompaniment training for how to accompany people who are going to the ICE check-ins and just kind of provide moral support and bear witness to people who are being deported like every day as we speak. Um, and, you know, think about in New York City, I mean, some of the statistics that happen, like most people don't know that Asian Americans are the poorest ethnic group in the city. Over one in four of us live in poverty and we receive a disproportionate lower number of services. These are numbers that not get, don't get talked about in the model minority myth. So how do we learn to see people, like who the restaurant worker is, who's a wait staff, who's a laundromat, who's a nearest salon person that we interact with? And I think we have a, a couple callings. Um, you know, I would say specifically for white people in this church, um, really just the first thing is to listen um, and to believe, right? And that's something we can do, um, you know, coming to this workshop. Um, it's also something we can practice every day and just in your interactions with other people in your life. How do you show up? How do you show up and not be the person who needs to be in charge? Um, and really, like, how do we get uncomfortable? I always think this is something people ask me about. Oh, you're telling me I should feel guilty. You know, we like, uh, let's just be honest, we really like having answers. Like it's like a human tendency to want to know the answer to things. And I think for white people saying, how are we going to shift the power dynamic here? It means we, we have to not have the answer. And like that has to be okay. Like we have to let someone else lead and have the answer. Um, and then the second thing I would say is, um, 
you know, a lot of us are not from here, right? Like I go home to my family in Texas, you go home to your family in Ohio or Indiana. We have to talk to our people. Um, a friend of mine always said, you know, make the potluck uncomfortable, right? Like this is that, that moment where like my friends of color are not sitting around a dining room table with your grandpa making really off color racist jokes, right? And I feel like these are those moments. Okay, maybe, okay. <laughs> maybe possible, possible. Um, the black delegation would like to disagree. <laughs> uh, but those are those moments where I feel like we often lean on communities of color to tell these stories because we don't feel comfortable and we don't like talking about it. So we're like, oh, I don't know, Frank, how, how does it feel, right? But we have to talk to our families and our friends because we might be the only person in their life who's gonna talk to them about racism and just how we came to terms with it in a really honest and difficult way. Um, we have a social media group of some folks from church who are from not New York who are trying to do this and hold each other accountable. So if you're interested, come talk to me about it. But uh, um, it's called Ally Be Home for Christmas. It's very <laughs> cheesy because um, we were all realizing I gotta go home and I gotta sit around this table. Um, and the other thing I would encourage you to look up is um, showing up for racial justice. There's a chapter here. The trainings are amazing. They give you moments in time where you can, can do exactly this, where you can show up, um, you know, put your body and your person there, um, but not necessarily be the person who, who's leading and directing the movement. So. Thank you. We have literally one minute left, Frank. So, All right, so like yeah. in, the, in this last minute, what I want to do is I want, I want to give everyone like a starting point, right? So I'm going to share with you three things that in my mind are absolute facts. Feel free to disagree. Number one, Pedro Martinez is the greatest pitcher in the history of baseball. Like I disagree. I, listen. I disagree. I'm, I'm dying on this hill, all right? I'm doubling down. Say what you must, bring your numbers, come ready to fight. Number two, and this is 10 times more, more difficult for you to beat me at, The Wire is the greatest show in the history of television. Do not fight. Uh, dude, I'm serious. Bring your ratings. I'm bring gonna, whatever you I'm want. I'm going to stand next to you and die on that hill Come with see you. me. Come yeah. see me. I am dying yeah. on this hill. All right. And number three is, like, let's, let's use this as a starting point, right? Like, I'm, I have this song playing in the back of my mind. It's like, because nobody wins when the family feuds, right? And that's what we're doing. We're living alone. We're living apart. So I'm going to give you these little things, right? Because let's talk about this. And then we'll talk about a little something heavy. And then we'll talk about something stupid. And then we'll talk about something heavy. It has to be a layered conversation that happens over time. This is not going to be fixed tomorrow or next week. But I deeply appreciate everyone just being a part of this. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you so much. And let's thank, let's thank our panelists. Great job. Thank you guys so much. Um, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to take communion. Communion is where we get to celebrate that Jesus comes and that Jesus, his death and resurrection means that God sees us, um, has always seen us as loved and beautiful and, and, and God's own creation. Uh, we're also going to have someone over here on the side of the stage praying for you. I believe that's Susan. Yeah, Susan's going to be over here. If, if anybody needs prayer for anything they heard or just something that's on their heart, please take advantage. Ben's going to be playing, playing for us. Um, but really let the, what we just talked about sink in and just feel this. And how is the Spirit moving us to, into action today? So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this conversation. We thank you for this safe place. We thank you for the church that can be the safe place where we can have this conversation. We thank you for those courageous enough to tell their stories. Uh, we thank you for everyone in this room who, who, who may be afraid to tell their story and doesn't have a voice. And we, we, uh, we're thankful for their story as well, Lord, uh, that it matters. So, Lord, as we leave here today, we pray that you would leave us uh, by calling us into a courageous and uncomfortable action 
um, to repair and restore shalom to this place like you've invited us to do so as your siblings in Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.